So we're in uh, the Gospel of Mark, as we've just read. And I just want to say two things uh, before we get into our text. Uh, And that is two things that I'm not going to do. I'm not going to tell you the interesting fact that Jesus tells the demons not to go and talk about him. Perhaps you've thought about that question a couple of times as we've been journeying through and thought, oh, I wonder what uh, the answer is this morning. I'm not going to talk about that. The second thing, I'm not going to go, uh, well, I'm going to mention three things about it, um, but I'm probably not going to satisfy you, I suppose, about the unforgivable sin. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Um, And perhaps David will have the the key to um, settling this one for me. I'm not going to try to give an extended answer. I'm going to mention three things briefly at the start here. The first is uh, about the unforgivable sin. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Um, That there may be a clue in the word never. So if I said to you, if you have mud on your shoes, you're never coming in this house. You would probably uh, uh, understand that statement to be that while I continue to have mud on my shoes, I won't come in the house. Uh, Not that if you arrived at my front door and had mud on your shoes, that that would be it for you ever coming into my house. That's just how we would understand that statement with the word never in there. So there may be a clue here um, in this passage that whoever blasphemes the Spirit never has forgiveness of sins. Meaning, while that continues to be the posture of your heart, there is no forgiveness of sins for you, not now and not then. That may be a clue. Another uh, thing to factor into this topic is that in Matthew, uh, the thing that Jesus says straight after this statement is he, because what the context is that the, the uh, scribes, have, they've made an assessment of Jesus uh, that what he's doing is by uh, the power of the, uh, Satan. And then Jesus says, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And what he says, don't, don't ascribe the work that I'm doing uh, to the work of Satan. But then he says, make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. And I take that to be what he's doing then is he's pushing back in, ball back into their court and saying, make a proper assessment. You've seen the fruit, I'm driving out demons, so make the tree good as well. But if you're going to make the tree bad, then make the fruit bad. Don't make the fruit good and the tree bad. And so it seems to me that what he's doing in Matthew is he's still giving them an option. Make the right decision about me. Repent, change your mind, make the tree good and the fruit good, and don't be in a position where there's no forgiveness of you now or in the life to come. So that's a thing to consider as well that it might not be something that you have done, and that's the end. Uh, And the third thing is just that a common answer to this question is that this is not um, a kind of frivolous thing that they've come up with, but it's a settled position. They resolve that uh, that what Jesus is doing is uh, the work of the devil. They're not willing to ascribe him and his work to God. And uh, Jesus wants to say essentially that the stakes are so high Everything is narrowed down onto me that the assessment that you make of me determines your standing with God both now and forever. It's really, really serious. So don't make the wrong assessment of me. 
That's three things to say about that. Perhaps that's been helpful for you. I hope it has. And let's just park that there now and get into what we have before us. Now, the story so far marks a narrative. It's not just a list of propositions. And so we have to enter the story. So let's enter the story together. Not at 3 verse 7. We're just going to briefly whiz over where we've been so we can feel where we are at this point, right? Okay, so Mark starts the story, and when I say story, I don't mean fiction, I just mean narrative. I prefer story to narrative, right? Now, he starts the story, and it's exciting, okay? John's in the wilderness, he's this prophet guy, he's, wear, he's, he's dressed like Elijah, uh, he's got, there's a message, the one coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Uh, there's this, he's in the wilderness. There is uh, a prophecy from Isaiah that somebody's preaching in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus heads out into the wilderness. This has got this kind of exodus uh, echoes to it. You know, uh, Israel came out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. Ooh, what's going to happen? Um, John makes this amazing statement about Jesus. Yeah, he's, he's greater than I. I'm not worthy to, to, to tie his sandals. Uh, there's this enormous crowd that's gathering. They're coming from everywhere. They're all gathered around John. They're at the Jordan and getting baptized, and the Jordan's like a, a significant point. That's the place that they, um, that's the river that they went through before entering the promised land, and Joshua led them through, and then they renewed the covenant on the other side, and it's a very exciting place. It's an exciting time. Um, Mark increases the sense of intensity by repeatedly using the word immediately. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did that. Uh, immediately he opened the door. Immediately he got the bread. Immediately he looked at Jordan. Immediately. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. And Jesus is healing people. Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is teaching in a way that everybody's amazed. There's great crowds gathering around Jesus now. He's a really exciting guy. Not only that, but Jesus is bringing something new. That's what it sounds like. Uh, Jesus is kind of quizzed as to why his disciples are not uh, fasting when the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. And Jesus is, gives this kind of enigmatic answer that says you can't put new wine into old wineskins and you can't put a new piece of cloth onto an old garment. Uh, it's not, it's not going to work. And the point being, and the sense that you have is, oh, there's something, something's new going on. So we've got Exodus kind of themes. We've got something new going on. The Lord is coming. <coughs> And one other thing to say that <clears throat> adds to this, uh, adds to the story so far, is that <clears throat> Jesus has given us a clue before we got to here about a deeper meaning behind the works that he's doing. <clears throat> and we saw that in it was in chapter two after the healing of the paralytic. The healing of the paralytic was was a, a, a move in that direction where he brings. It's not just about healing the the paralytic man now. Now it's about forgiveness of sins as well. And then he goes and he eats with the tax collectors and sinners. And the people say, how come you're eating with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. And in that statement, what he's doing, if you can see, he's, he's connecting illness with the sinners and he's connecting health with the righteous. And what he's bringing together there is he's, it's a way of pointing to his miracles and saying, you know how I cleaned clean that leper? That's not just about fixing up the skin. Leprosy itself is a picture of the uncleanness of sin, the dirtiness of our sin. And I can clean, heal the leper, but I can also make you clean. There's a moral uh, dimension that Jesus' miracles are pointing to. And that's exciting. Jesus is coming, he's, he's fixing things. <clears throat> and amongst that excitement, there's been some opposition and there's been some questioning. And that's what we just had in, in chapter 2 up to 3.6. So we had, uh, there was a string of encounters and they all happened fairly quick. One was the paralytic and you have the scribes and they're starting to kind of say, you know, what's the deal with this guy saying that he can forgive sins? And then again, as we've just spoken about the tax collectors and they're mumbling, why is Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And then the next one, they have a problem with him, or at least a, a question, intrigued, how come he's not fasting? Next, how come, he's not eating on, how come he's eating on the Sabbath? And how come he's healing people on the Sabbath? There's this string of questioning and opposition, and it ends on a kind of ominous note at this point in the story, uh, at 3.6, that they gather together and make a plan to destroy him. <clears throat> That's where we are in the narrative. <clears throat> and now, 3 verse 7. And I want us to think about this uh, down to 35. So we're looking at chapter 3, verse 7, down to 35. And I want us to think about this in two parts. The first part there is from verse 7 to verse 12, and it focuses around a large crowd. And then the second part is from verse 13 down to the end of verse 35. <clears throat> so that's, think about that in terms of the structure. Now, I need us to see a few things that are conceptually related, however they are described using different designations, different words. Okay, so in, in, in verses 3 to 35, here's the kind of picture, right? 7 to 12, we have this large crowd, enormous crowd. They come from everywhere, Jerusalem, Edomia, Tyre, Sidon. This enormous crowd, they're all mobbing Jesus. And then the next scene uh, goes to Jesus on a mountain. And he's calling 12, uh, he's calling his, the disciples that he wants to him, and then he's selecting 12 out of them. Now here's the things that we need to see. We've got the crowd, and then the rest, is we need to see some a few points down here in verses 13 to 35. We need to see these overlapping concepts. Here are some of them. Uh, family, in verse 21. In verse 20, uh, the word house. In verse 24, uh, the word kingdom. Uh, and I don't have the reference here, but 
in, in his explanation of what, he, um, what he's doing, uh, plundering uh, Satan's kingdom, he refers to it again as a household. <clears throat> and all of these concepts are related to what he's doing with the twelve. And all of them are about a people, a kingdom, a family, gathering, 12 to, uh, gathering people to him and designating a twelve, which is the creation of a people, uh, a household. They're all related in that they're all about a people, a group of people. It's a, they are different uh, ways, different angles at coming at the same thing. That's a, that's a theme from verse 13 to 35. So do we see that? I hope we do. Now, <clears throat> moving through the story together, and starting in verse 13, he goes up on the mountain, we have Jesus on the mountain, and he's gathering um, people to him and selecting 12. Now, because we know our Bible uh, stories, we know that there are 12 tribes of Israel, and we know that after they came out of Egypt, they were constituted, formalized as the people of God at a mountain. Right? So here we have Jesus on the mountain designating 12 people. We're supposed to see the parallel. It's like Jesus is creating a people, it's like he's creating a new people. And we have to say this is a radical thing to do. This is a really. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure quite what the right word to put on it is. Is it provocative? Is it, it would be arrogant for someone else. You've got, you've got the nation and, and 12 tribes is like a key feature of like, that's what we are, we're the 12 tribes of Israel. And then this guy who's got this really big following goes up on a mountain and designates 12 people to be his close inner circle. It's like, bro... You are create. You, what are you trying to copy God, or are you trying to make your own little group of people out of this group of people? What are you doing? Who who are you, and what is this thing that you're doing? And that's exactly what we're supposed to see. That's a big deal that he gets twelve people around him, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's making a new people, and that's in contrast to the crowd. Just in two scenes like that. Now, this new group of people, just in case you're not excited about this, this is not just like a subgroup of people who write Israel is like semi-interesting and then a subgroup within Israel is like a little bit less interesting than semi-interesting. No, if you're tracking with the Bible story, God's redemptive purposes for the whole world are centred on Israel. What God is doing with Israel is what God is doing with the world. So if you want to get in on what God is doing, you need to get in on what's going on with Israel. But now you need to get in on what's going on with Jesus. This is the front end of the most exciting thing that God is doing in the world. That's what's happening as Jesus goes up the mountain and gets 12, 12 apostles around him. Okay, so that's what happens. Then Jesus, next scene, he goes into a house. <clears throat> house, household, there's a little theme here. And what happens is his family come and they try to take charge of him. And they, th they say he's out of his mind. And this only clicked to me last night. Well, why do they say he's out of his mind? I think probably because they got what he just did with the 12. Maybe that's why they're saying you're out of your mind. 
That's, you, you're, you're starting a big thing now, Jesus, by, by getting this 12 going. So the, his family comes, they're outside, they're calling to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus is out of his mind. And then the story's interrupted. And that's what Mark does. He starts a story, he interrupts the story, and then he comes back to the story. And so that's why the family is uh, pick, uh, family's picked up again, I think, in verse 31, is it? And um, so we get this interruption. <clears throat> and the interruption is the teachers of the law who also make an assessment about Jesus. Their assessment is that what he's been doing is he's been casting out demons by the prince of demons, uh, by Beelzebul. That's their assessment. But Jesus then gives them an answer and says, you're wrong, and there's two reasons why what you're saying doesn't make sense, and then I've got a challenge for you. And so the two things he says, he says, firstly, it doesn't make sense that Satan would be fighting against Satan, because if he's doing that, then his kingdom's about to come to an end. So that's not a very good explanation, your explanation. Secondly, what's a better explanation as to what's happening is that if Satan's house is being plundered, it probably makes sense that somebody stronger than Satan is here, who's bound Satan, and is um, plundering his house. That's a better explanation of what's happening. In fact, it's probably better to think of me as the one who comes after John, who's mightier than John, whose strap John wasn't worthy to untie. That'd be a good explanation. So, you're wrong on two accounts, and here I put a challenge to you, and that is, if you keep this assessment of me up, there's no forgiveness of sins. Because all of God's purposes are focused on me. I'm the one who can heal the paralytic, I'm the one who can forgive sins. I'm the one who can make the unclean clean. If you're not going to have the right assessment of me and be centred around me, then there is no forgiveness for you now and there's no forgiveness then. So I'm putting the ball back into your court. That's a challenge for you. You made the wrong assessment. You need to make the right assessment. And then it comes back to the family. So back to the family there. And notice in verse 31, where are the family? They're outside. Verse 32, it's repeated that they're outside, isn't it? Is that right? We're told in verse 31 and in verse 32 that they're outside. It's a little bit superfluous. <clears throat> but it's a point that Mark is trying to make. He, he does the opposite when he talks about the people who are around Jesus. In your, in your NIVs there, does it say that he, has a, that he looks around him at the people sitting around him There's a contrast that Mark is drawing in this passage between those who are outside and those who are inside. And then Jesus makes another radical statement when he says, uh, so so, so we're back at the family and they say, look, your family are outside and they're calling for you. And then Jesus says, who are my mother and brother? Who are my family? And then he looks around him And he says, here are my mother and my brother and my sister. For whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, mother. Now that's radical because it's not biological. But that's how Israel's been rolling so far. And it's radical because it's not about status either. 
The teachers of the law don't seem to be included in this. And his very own family are on the outside and don't seem to be included in this. But who does seem to be included in this is people who do the will of God. They're the ones that are included in this family. Now, can you see the theme coming together? He's created a people. We've got family, house. He's talking about kingdom. We come down here. This is my family, those who do the will of God. And at this point in the story, what that looks like is it looks like the people who are around Jesus, who have centred their lives on Jesus, we might say, they've oriented their whole, they're oriented their lives, that picture, around Jesus. And they're under him. They're not like the family who are trying to seize him and gain control of him. And they're not like the teachers of the law who are making the wrong assessment about him. They're people who are submitted to him and centred on him. That's not the only picture we have of what it means to be doing the will of God and to be being a part of God's family. The Bible gives us other pictures. But that's a good picture to get into our minds about what it means when we try to describe faith, when we try to describe receiving Jesus, when we try to describe following Jesus. Another way to describe it is to sit under Jesus and to centre your life around Jesus. That is who the people are who are doing the will of God and they constitute his family. Okay, so we've gone all the way through then to the end. I just want to take one step back to the side and look at why that little intrusion and just try to bring that little interruption uh, with the um, teachers of the law uh, into a little bit clearer focus and then see how it all goes together. In order to understand this uh, interruption, I think it will be helpful for us to just be reminded that in the Bible, the idea of two paths or two options is very prominent. So it's, a, it's something that appears in wisdom literature. Uh, you have you know, set before you two paths, or, or um, take the narrow way, not the broad way. It's what you have in, the, um, in Deuteronomy, I set before you life or death. It's what you have uh, in Adam or in Christ. It's what you have in um, uh, two types of people, the righteous or the wicked. <laughs> the Bible sets forth two options. There's no neutral ground. That's how... The Bible uh, conceives uh, humanity. And, and one of them is that there are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. There's God's kingdom and there's the kingdom of the devil. And we can see this, one of the places, I'm going to just give a few, uh, is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. And in, and in Colossians 1, verse 13, Paul is describing what's happened to him and to the, the Colossians, and he says, he delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, did you notice what he said? He delivered us out of the domain of darkness. Paul puts himself in that basket and he assumes that of the Colossians. He delivered us out of, the, out of the domain of darkness. The implication is we were in the domain of darkness, now we're not, now we're in the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the first text. The second is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, when he says, I'll read this to get it better, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Ready? 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? Following the prince of the power of the air. What's that about? And then he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? You were dead following the prince of the power of the air. Gosh, that's a very poor picture of humanity apart from Christ. And I'll just say, if you're not following Jesus, if you don't know him as your saviour and lord, there are a couple of reasons why there are big problems in your life. One of those reasons is because you are under and following the prince of the power of the air. You may not know it, but you're influenced by the devil. And he's out to ruin your life. And the place for safety and refuge is in Jesus. The place to fix up your life is in Jesus. Right, so this is Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, among whom we all once lived. 2 Corinthians 4 uh, is another place where we see uh, the same idea. <clears throat> there he says, uh, and even if our gospel is veiled, that is, hidden, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Note what he says there, the God of this world. And finally, in 1 John, John can just say it quite clearly. We know that we are from God. This is chapter 5, verse 19. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's the view of the world. As we put those texts together, we can see there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the world, which is the kingdom of darkness. It's under the power of the evil one. It's following the prince of the power of the air. The God of that world has blinded unbelievers. That is the kingdom of darkness. It's the domain of darkness. And on the other side, we have the kingdom of the beloved son. It's the kingdom of light. It's the kingdom of life. <clears throat> and it's within that frame of understanding that Jesus has this little encounter with the scribes in Mark. Because they're saying, you're casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus says, no. What's happening is, that guy is bound, and I'm plundering his kingdom. That's what's going on, as those people, as Jesus is driving out demons. So just like the leper gave us a window into seeing that Jesus doesn't just make skin clean, but makes us morally clean, here, Jesus is showing What's happening as I'm casting out demons is a window into the reality that I can take people out of the kingdom of darkness and put them into the kingdom of, well, me, my kingdom, the beloved son. I am, at this present time, creating a people. There are people who are centered around me. We can call them my family. This is my household. And I'm taking them out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into my kingdom. 
so they can be under my rule. <clears throat> so I think that's why we have that interruption in the, in the, in the narrative is it's another way to look at this same reality. Jesus is plundering the devil's kingdom. And who are these people and how do we get in on this? Center your life around Jesus. Submit to him. There are two ways of looking at this one reality of how Jesus is making a people and how we can become part of that people. And so, what now? What now? What do we do now as, we, as Mark is introducing us uh, and teaching us about this new community, <clears throat> I think it cuts two ways. The first uh, is that it has something to say to those who presume to be on the inside. I think it challenges the presumption of being on the inside. I think that's probably how they would have felt it. <clears throat> because it's no longer just about simply being born into this reality. It's, it's not about uh, how clever you are or how much you know the, the law. What matters about being a part of this community is whether your life is centred around Jesus and you're doing God's will by doing that, submitting to him. But the other is that it creates a possibility for the outsiders it's an invitation to the outsiders. Who are my family? Those who do the will of God. This could be me. And so that's right. It could be you. It could be, it could be, it could be you. <clears throat> and if you think to yourself, well, maybe I'm, too bad, or maybe Jesus wouldn't have me. Remember, he is plundering people out of the kingdom of the devil. He, he knows what he's getting. And he knows what you've done. And he went to the cross to die for your sins. Not unawares as to what he was doing, but as Paul says in Romans 5, even while you were still sinners, God demonstrates his love for us in that Christ died for us. Christ died for you while you're still a sinner. Don't let sin stop you from coming to Jesus. He didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. That's why he came. The outsiders come on in. Oh God, make us a church where it's okay to be a sinner to come in. Make us a church where we can uh, not have to hide our sins and act like everything's okay, but we can be humble with one another because Jesus covers sin. <clears throat> and I want to just finish here by pushing us out uh, back to that idea of excitement this is an exciting story, what's happening so far, right? I don't want to keep that momentum going as we carry on through Mark. Belonging to him is exciting. Belonging to Jesus is belonging to the one who can free us from the domain of darkness. 
Belonging to Jesus is belonging to the one who can heal us. Inside, outside, he will heal us on that final day when he raises us from the dead and gives us transformed bodies that live forever. Belonging to Jesus is belonging to the one who, as we'll see, can calm the seas with a word. Belonging to Jesus is belonging to the one in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Belonging here is a safe place. This is the best place to belong. It's exciting to be belonging to Jesus, to centre your life around him and to have him as your Lord and teacher and friend. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for what you've done in your Son, Christ, our Lord. Jesus, we lift up your name. You're worthy of our time. You're worthy of our singing. You're worthy of our lives. We're so sorry for the times when we take our eyes off you, when we drift away from you, when we doubt your word or your goodness or your majesty. Thank you that you came to die for our sins. Thank you that you make us clean, that you deliver us from Satan's power. We pray that by your spirit you would lift up our hearts to see you more clearly and to know you more deeply for the good of our own souls. Thank you for our time together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.